Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. The three of us are children of the 80s, and like many of our generation, we love to revel in nostalgia. For us, this has meant revisiting some of our favourite fantasy films of that decade. Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal, The Princess Bride, and now Lady Hawk. So Lady Hawk was released in 1985 to fairly average reviews. The film stars Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer, and Michelle Pfeiffer in a medieval fantasy setting. But this world is not too dissimilar to history and is limited in its fantasy elements. They are integral to the narrative, however. It is a tale of forbidden love. Two lovers, Navarre and Isabeau, are doomed never to see one another again, with one human by day and wolf by night, the other a hawk by day, human by night. Why do we think that this film hasn't had the same cultural penetration as many fantasy films of its like time why do you think that might be the tone of it is is quite jarring and maybe it's not quite as dedicated to one genre of film in this case fantasy as its contemporaries because i'm thinking of like legend i'm thinking of willow i'm thinking of um the ones you just talked about princess bride like dark crystal this early um fantasy Those kind of films, there's something that links those together. And I think it's the feeling of high fantasy. It's the feeling of like, you know, um, dragons and mythical creatures. Not to say this film is not completely replete with loads of tropes. It is. But this whole kind of faux French setting um, and and getting the church involved, having an evil bishop, it, it feels like it doesn't quite have a natural home in the canon and I wonder whether that um, combined with the very special Electronica score which is so 80s it's unbelievable um, is contributing to the fact that it didn't have so so much of a kind of punch as its um, fellow fantasy. I have to say that one of the things that really sticks out for me is the like the cheesiness of that 80s soundtrack. I I just feel like most of the other fantasy films kind of went for more orchestral, sweeping, quite classical. Yeah. And then this one is just like synth. And we go, do, 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 It feels like it's just. It's actually really unique in it. It actually almost makes me smile. Like when I suddenly, I hear, I hear the sound. You can just go and um, YouTube the, the opening and it's just like, oh, it's the 80s bottled up into one sound. <laughs> But it's so unique in that respect because you will, you know, you listen to that and then you're like, "What? hang on a second, this is a fantasy film? Like, what? Um, they didn't even make an attempt to, uh, you know, go Middle Earth or Narnia on it. Yeah, it sounds more like the 80s sci-fi films than it does the uh, 80s fantasy mm, films. That's really interesting, yeah. So I wonder whether that had a an impact on the fact that Nobody talks about it quite as much. You see, I would disagree because I was very much a child of the 80s and I remember going into a a record store um, when CDs had just come out 
and finding a CD of the Legend soundtrack, which is by Tangerine Dream. And it was all the same kind of stuff. And I loved that. And I I found a little bit out of place. I know what Megan was saying about, you know, why isn't this in a sci-fi film? Because it sounds like it should be in Blade Runner in some places. But it is kind of like the, the synthesized power ballads. I think it it's not too bad. Um, I don't think the soundtrack is something too bad about it. Um, however, I have to say that I was thinking about what you were saying about all the other films that are around. And I think all the other films tend to focus their focus their budget or their action on something. So I was looking at the fight scenes in uh, Lady Hawk and comparing it to The Three Musketeers, which is beautifully choreographed and really well done, and there's lots of stunts and everything. Um, and Rutger Hauer basically fights with horse, horseshoes and a burning stick. Uh, it's not quite up to the, the level of everybody else. I was also thinking about special effects and I was thinking about The Dark Crystal, which has all those beautiful special effects and Krull, which is a really terrible film, but stuck in my mind because it does have all the mythical creatures and all that kind of, you know, fire breathing swamps and things like that. Um, it doesn't really fit into the historical category, like things like Lady Jane Grey, which was around at the same time because the bishop in Lady Jane Grey is, sorry, the bishop in um, Lady Hawk is also in Lady Jane Grey. Um, and it hasn't quite got the the comedy of the Princess Bride, although I did love some of um, Philippe's lines. They, oh, they were just some wonderful ones. What was it? Not for the life of my mother, even if I knew who she was. But, but they kind of get thrown in and are just kind of kept to Philippe as the comedy role, whereas the other two were kind of playing straight characters, and it doesn't quite hit the same notes as the Princess Bride. I like that you talked about the fighting, because when I watched this film... I, it just cracks me up when they have a bloody sword sword fight on horses within the cathedral. Like it just, I'm like, what? <laughs> but it, you know, it's not something you generally see with you know mounted fighters on horses inside a cathedral. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty cool to be honest. But also, it's it's very. It does come across. <laughs> yes, it's silly. It's a little bit amateur, and it's. Um, I guess choreography of the fights but I kind of enjoy it for that as well I think uh also for me I think one of the reasons why this one doesn't necessarily hit the same kind of nostalgic note that many others do is the fact that it's not a secondary world I think that when people kind of go into for the fantasy films they really kind of want to see a secondary world or at least the other films of you know that time were certainly that way and i wonder if maybe perhaps you know as as lucy was mentioning earlier that you know because the magic is limited and it's not quite so much a fantasy is it a histor- historical kind of thing it it just yeah i really do think that potentially with with the kind of not fitting in one or other category has kind of hurt it a little bit So we did mention that the film can be tonally a little bit jarring. It goes from the silly slapstick, ridiculous to serious and then back again in, you know, all within the same scene. Um, And I couldn't work out. I feel like I should say I really love this film and I have loved it since I was a kid because my mother loved it as well. And we used to watch it all the time, but I still like watch it now and I can't work out if it's, skewering the fantasy tropes you know is it like poking fun at them or is it 
you know, representing them in earnest or, or is it trying to be something in between? Like, wh- I don't even know what it's trying to do. I think it's trying to be a big budget film with its big budget names of Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, but at the same time, it's also trying to poke fun at fantasy tropes in the form of Philippe, like I was saying earlier, where he gets all the funny lines. So you've kind of got these two characters of Navarre and Philippe and they're just they're trying to get to the same place but in very different ways and I think sometimes that can work really well and kind of give you an odd couple kind of character but I didn't feel that Rutger Hauer really gave much away he was just playing it absolutely straight and um and Matthew Broderick was playing it all for laughs and I think it just didn't quite work. I think if they'd gone a little bit and had it a bit more dynamic and had Rutger Hauer, you know, giving the odd joke here or there or Philippe sort of being a little bit more serious every now and again, then it probably would have worked. But it did kind of feel like it was two quests going along at the same time and what focus you had depended on who was talking. I also love the um, the straight up kind of hanging a hat on it in the fact that Navard actually says, I have a quest. You know, because just in case we weren't aware that there was this fantasy trope of, the, you know, the man going out in its quest, he, he tells us, so you can't be confused. <laughs> it, it's really funny, isn't it? Because I do feel like sometimes it's very aware of itself and at other times it's totally tone deaf and doesn't get the fact that it's where it's sitting kind of in the fantasy canon at all. And you only kind of have to look at, you know, something like TV Tropes to see how many it actually lists in this film. And it's it's ridiculous. It's so, there's so many things that, you know, you could talk about. But I wonder whether everything we've been saying about the fact that it doesn't sit happily in fantasy, it doesn't sit happily in historical kind of narratives, like, is does that give it some kind of immunity to stereotypes? Or does it just throw them into relief and make them all the more obvious when you do see them? Yeah, I don't know. It's really hard because, you know, it just it just goes back to them. I couldn't work out if it was sending it up or leaning into them, this, these tropes. It sometimes does one and then it flips and it does another. And you're like, oh, it's one of those films that you can't quite get a handle on. I mean, I tried to show it to my parents and they, they I think they managed 10 minutes before deciding it was the worst trash that they'd ever seen. And I demanded that I turn it off. And I was like, I just ran sobbing to my room. <laughs> you never understand. <laughs> Clutching the DVD. Oh, fine. Lucy, you can watch it with my mum. She's She'll be there for you. Um, although she's mostly there for Matthew Broderick. But... <laughs> One of the things I find really funny about this film is that, you know, in, in the opening sequences, you know, it, it kind of, it's very serious but hammy in the same, at the same time. And then you you have your, the introduction to Mouse, you hear him before you really see him because he's trying to come out of that wall. And then one of the first things he says when you actually see him is, it's not unlike escaping mother's womb. And you're just like, okay, that's actually a really weird thing <laughs> for, for a character to say when you're first kind of introduced to them. You, you just, I kind of feel like it's going to be serious. And then he says something like that because it's meant to be like the prison is billed as like an Alcatraz. It's like, this is the inescapable prison that one can easily escape when you're 
the kind of sidekick character. Um, so it was really funny that he then just delivers this line in, and I was like, I was, dude, I didn't see that coming at all. So I have, I have a certain fondness for this line. So thinking about contrasts and things, I wanted to see what you guys thought about the implication of Navarre turning into a giant black wolf while Isabeau is a dainty killer hawk. Um, I mean, I thought this was a a really wonderful idea and I I like the the setup, but I thought the choice of animals was quite telling. So I wonder what you guys thought about it. Well, it's pretty hard to overlook the fact that, you know, of the lone wolf trope um i feel like he's quite wolfish in his behavior um and i think isabeau is graceful and i'm not sure about the deadly part i mean i think they're trying to make her kind of look fierce and i mean michelle pfeiffer's the fiercest of the fierce and i love her so much um but you know they could almost have given isabeau like a nightingale or something because i feel so much of her she has very, very little agency and kind of action. She doesn't instigate many of the scenes in the movie. So I feel like giving her a hawk is slightly disingenuous to her character. Well, I think the thing that is crucial about a hawk instead of a nightingale is that you can own a hawk and you can train it. I think that's what I was looking at. And you don't own a wolf. They're both hunting creatures. They're both prized but one of them is prized when it's dead (laughs) and for its pelt and all the other bits and one of them is elusive and fluttering high in the air but once you catch it you can train it and it can be yours and I think there's well I don't think I know that there is a huge amount of this ownership idea of Isabeau throughout it Um, and we've obviously got her being possessed by the bishop and then being tied to Navarre because even though they're in love they're still kind of tied and bound together aren't they um, and I really like there was one little bit where um, uh, Roderick at the beginning has a bargain with God. He's wonderfully right and he immediately reneges on it and goes, oh, well, I promise I'll pray, but maybe not right now. Um, and I really like that bit when it was contrasted later on when he lies for Isabeau um, and actually shows that he's greater than the bishop who wanted her for himself because he lies to make Navarre feel better and to encourage Navarre's love rather than trying to say, oh, she likes me better kind of thing. Um, and I just thought that was a really nice contrast. Um, and again, all comes back to this idea of ownership and, and her being a hawk. Uh, I don't suppose there's much to be gained perhaps from the fact that wolves are perhaps seen as creatures which can usually straddle two realities like uh, life and death. And I suppose that has the symbolism of the whole movie about them sort of crossing over. Um, but yeah, I thought her being something that could be owned and could be trained was, was quite a, a, a nice but bitter choice. What you're saying is I completely agree with it because there's um there's a scene quite late in the film that when I watched it again a couple of months ago, uh, really jumped out at me as being like, oh my God. Basically, Navarre says, like, if I don't come back, then you need to put her out of her misery. <laughs> and I was, oh my God, yes, Oh my God, that. like, talk about ownership. Like, he decides that she would be so upset if he died that she could not possibly live on her own without him. And is like, yeah, you need to kill her. Like, I was really shocked about that. So yeah, your idea of ownership, I think, has some traction in this. Like, definitely. One of the things I find about birds, particularly because I volunteered in a falconry centre, is how delicate they can be, particularly with their wings. 
And there's a really interesting bit at the beginning where she gets an arrow in her wing or is about halfway through. And, you know, that's pretty fatal for a bird, you know, if they can't fly and they're downed. And they have this whole scene where Broderick has to pull it out of her. Um, and she's kind of writhing all over the place. And I, I liked it from one point of view because you get too many films in fantasy and action where someone gets shot and they're like, oh, it's fine, I'll just break it off and keep fighting. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't really happen. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, once you've been injured, it does take time and effort and pain to get it out. But on the other hand, I kind of felt that wasn't really what they were going for. She was small and delicate and she'd been shot through a wing, which is quite fatal for a bird. And here she was writhing and able to bear the pain. And it just it just clashed a little bit for me. And I just felt that maybe they, they took it a little bit too far on that. I mean, what do you think about the fact that she clearly is so easily injured, whereas Matthew Broderick gets torn to pieces by the wolves? He's like, no, no, I'm fine. I can help drag you out of a, an ice bath. It's no problem. Well, also, um, there's another scene with an arrow and Navarre just shrugging the arrow off because it, presumably, because he's wearing armour. And um, <laughs> it's slightly <laughs> unbelievable. So I do think that you're right to point out that the men are treated differently when they're wounded to the way that Isabeau is treated. It's all a little bit gendered, I think. Also, um, I would like to point out that when Isabeau is a woman and the arrow is in her. Uh, there's some lovely, filled with desire, these shots of her bosom and this yes. arrow coming out of her bosom um, is certainly something to think about as well. Oh, and that's the other thing I want to know. All right, so how come Navarro is always wearing that really smart black uniform, but Philippe needs to steal clothes for Isabeau? And what happened to that beautiful cloak she was wearing the first time around? How come he gets to keep all his clothes and everybody has to go rooting around for, for Isabeau's clothes? It's like... No, no, Charlotte, it's sexier when she turns back into a naked lady and she hasn't got any clothes. <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd be perfectly happy with a naked Rutger Hauer running through the woods looking for his clothes. That That's cool. This film was clearly not made for you then. <laughs> it worked for Arnie and Terminator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Double standards, but this is no surprise to us here on Breaking the Glass Slipper. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting with the, I mean, I feel like it's definitely one of those um, incongruities with the story because one of the first times that we meet Navarre, he is basically sniffing and rubbing the cloak over his face. And it's Isabeau's cloak that he has kept for her and he keeps for her so that she has something to change into um and then what he just while he's so careful and diligent in, in when we first meet him and a little bit you know stalkery um <laughs> he then suddenly forgets to keep her clothes for her as the film goes on it, it is one of those ones where you're just like mm, is that quite right for his character i'm not sure but fine because plot as they say I mean, when we're talking about, you know, this being kind of a gendered thing, what really struck me as well is that there really is no other woman in this film. There are these little extras, um, mostly mothers and children, you know, when uh, Mouse or Philippe, whichever you want to call him, 
he is trying to uh, escape. You know, he puts his fingers up and he's in the cathedral and there's like a little girl who sees him and the mother who fobs him off. Uh, he walks through the villages and there's a child and then a mother when he steals clothes and there's, you know, the woman who, um, the, well, the wife of the man who, um, where they go and stay the night. You know, but there are only these women who are very, very secondary, more than secondary, like... <laughs> Tenth, in, they're just not at all important to the story, and the only ones who actually have any character, any personality, any lines, other than Isabeau, are men. See, I personally made a note of what happened to the farmer's wife when they go along and they they go in the barn, and then the farmer is found trying to kill them or steal something, and he gets killed. And I'm like, where is the wife? She doesn't come out crying. They don't worry about her. They just kill the husband. And it's, she's just like, she vanishes. Um, but I kind of feel that if we're looking at comparisons, uh, you've got Legend and Princess Bride, both of which just have one female character that I can think of. Um, and they stand up okay. Um, but yeah, it just, Ladyhawk does seem to be a little bit about the men. Uh, what's the phrase they use? A little bit of a sausage fest, which in some of the other ways it doesn't necessarily seem to be although i am looking forward to doing an episode on legend i think there's a lot of stuff to talk about i kind of feel that it's it's okay in a film of this era to not have many women in it because there aren't a lot of secondary male characters either it's it is kind of a very focused film they don't have a lot of it's not like a group thing like the three musketeers was excellent there was obviously like a good a good selection of them and they work various different people in but something like the princess bride or this or legend they're all very very focused on a few main characters and at the time obviously there weren't a lot of storylines for women they were usually the love interest but i kind of feel that in this case isabel is quite a good competent woman um i know she gets owned a lot but she's she's quite feisty um she manages to survive you know someone pulling an arrow out of her she's always trying to fight and there's a bit where they're trying to get the wolf and she goes and she chases the wolf hunter and I I really like that and I don't think you get that in some of the other ones where the women are just there to be rescued I like the fact that she's on the journey as well and she has a little bit of agency and participates and I must admit that by modern standards yeah she has no agency whatsoever but there was still just enough I felt to just just make it okay. I wonder if um, some of the lack of kind of extra female characters in this film is linked to um, the way that the rest of the world is really just paper thin. You kind of feel like the setting is there solely to serve as the story's backdrop and that the whole pseudo France thing, like you're never really quite sure about the historical period. Certainly historical accuracy is not, um, you know, a high priority for the filmmakers in this. And I feel like there's, there is definitely what kind of Charlotte was talking about saying that the story is very focused. And I think maybe that's an 80s thing as well. And maybe it's to do with, um, fantasy films but this is where I think it differs a little bit from as we were saying earlier from its contemporaries because the world is so thin and it's not fleshed out and it's not middle earth you know and it's not trying to kind of bring this secondary world to you know to your screens and to immerse you in that And, and maybe that 
goes to, you know, if people are not, if the filmmakers are not thinking about the world and fleshing it out, then I think a lot of stuff that they would otherwise consider possibly falls through the gaps. And women have always fallen through the gaps. So I don't think they were, they have, you know, on a high priority to begin with. Um, but it may account for the fact that, you know, you were saying, well, there are actually very few secondary male characters as well. And that really this is quite a focused storyline. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see what you mean, but talking about Isabeau, like some of the things that Charlotte was saying, I had kind of very mixed feelings about her um, as a character. I think, so in this film, I really love Mouse. Um, So Philippe Gaston, as played by Matthew Broderick, I think he's really fun and there's definitely the kind of semi-reprisal of... um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off with the kind of asides and the almost talking to camera and those kinds of things. They're definitely playing off that. And I think it really does work. He's very good at that. Isabeau is a character that doesn't, I don't know, she doesn't quite have a specific something about her. Because on the one hand, I feel that she is very passive, but she's also clever and sharp and funny and she can be sarcastic and, you know, she she is acerbic and I like that. But then at the same time, why is it that Navarre gets to travel and move them across this great vast country and he just takes them on these travels while she doesn't move in the night? She never leaves wherever he stopped for the night why could she not then move them along and then that's really good point (laughs) it is she's kind of tagging along yeah isn't she and and why is it that she never tries to decide where they're going or what they're doing or anything she just agrees to do whatever it is that navarre has decided is right for them well maybe navarre knows the land better than a Cosseted woman who's rich and kept in a lovely house and knows nothing about the wicked ways of the wide world. Well, it's because I suppose he has a mission, doesn't he? Because he wants to to get back at the bishop, and he's just looking for a way. Whereas she's just kind of going, "Oh, I'm resigned to my fate. I better, you know, stick along with this guy because I'm I'm kind of bound to him." And yeah, I suppose. In the overall sense, she doesn't really have a purpose. She doesn't have a mission. Um, she doesn't necessarily have a survival instinct, particularly because Navarra is already there to to look after her. So I was saying earlier about how she goes after the wolf hunter, which I thought was really, really good. Um, and she attacks him, which is great. <laughs> but unfortunately, her attack only works because the wolf appears and distracts the hunter. So even when she's trying to be very proactive, they kind of undermine it a little bit as well. So yeah, she, she kind of, does try and you know i i give her massive points for that and i think as a a character she is great but i can see megan's point that she kind of does get tagged along and kind of go along in the wake and even when she tries to pull away from it it's it's not happening for a poor girl i think it's a damsel in distress trope that's responsible for that um there's this whole i think that's probably this the trope that stands out as the most prominent in this film that she is a damsel she is in distress and when even when you say she tries to she does her one kind of major bit of agency she still kind of can't escape the damsel trope she still has to be aided and rescued and um and i think that's 
it's such a shame. I almost I feel like this could be so much worse if it hadn't been played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who is just amazing. And um, just there's something about her that just the kind of ferocity shines through, even though she hasn't really been given an awful lot to do in the film. I think it she really makes the character um, kind of. I don't want to say the word bearable, but yeah, bearable. Like I'm happy to watch this film. Like Meg was saying, she's happy to watch it again and again. And from everything we've been saying, that shouldn't really be the case. I mean, this film doesn't measure up particularly well against any of the the tests or the standards that we, you know, hold modern movies to. Um, so there is something about it that clearly bypasses our need to see women with agency on screen. Well, it's a film of its time, isn't it? And like I say, if you compare it to some of the other films that we watched, and I mean, I hold up Krull as the ultimate example of just the damsel in distress. And, you know, she does at least try. And and I think that's so important in a film in the 80s. And I can't decide if the writers have just put it in for, you know, because they they really felt they needed to, that she needed to be a stronger character, or whether it just made Rutger Hauer look better, I don't know. But it is there. And I think that's a, a really interesting element that they've taken to it. Uh, you talked about it not being Michelle Pfeiffer. I was reading on IMDb, which gave some ideas of um, who else they were going to cast. So they were thinking about, um, they wanted Rutger Hauer as the evil captain of the guard and having Kurt Russell as Navarre. And then when Kurt Russell dropped out, they gave it to Rutger Hauer, who'd been very interested in it. And they were talking about having Sean Penn or Dustin Hoffman in the role of Philippe or Mouse. But I didn't find anything that said they'd ever thought of anyone other than Michelle Pfeiffer to play it, which, again, might be sort of something that they were obviously like, we want a Michelle Pfeiffer type of woman because she does um, kick ass uh, effectively. So I, I don't know whether, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer as a choice is there because she is they are trying to fight back and put a strong female character in but at the time it just it just doesn't work and you can appreciate it as a film from the 80s where they were trying to do something a bit different even if they failed at least it is better than Kroll. What a resounding uh, review at least better than Kroll. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> it's not a high bar but it's an important one to my to my youthful um influences. Although I have to say she had better clothes in Kroll. Well, I think we should talk about um, masculinity because we've talked a lot about Isabeau and how she doesn't really fulfil our kind of desire to see a woman with agency on the screen. But there's a lot of men in this film. And uh, and so technically there should be a lot of displays of masculinity on the screen. So I was wondering what you both thought about, particularly the kind of like dichotomy between a mouse and um, Navarre because like in a way you couldn't get two more different men well I thought that was most obvious in their fight scenes and when I was growing up I used to love the Three Musketeers series uh, which had Ollie Reed in it and I oh I just I watched those films over and over again and they are beautifully choreographed it's like watching a dance all the Errol film Flynn films as well all fantastic <laughs> And then you put it up against um, Broderick and Rutger Hauer's fight scenes, and it's quite a stark contrast. So I said earlier that in Rutger Hauer's fight scene, he's sort of fighting with horseshoes and a burning stick, 
But if you look at Broderick's fight scenes, he just pushes and jumps and runs around. And I thought that was a really interesting balance of the two of them. You have uh, Rutger Hauer, who is clearly the the master swordsman, she says with air quotes, um, very much different to how Broderick is not a ninja fighter at all. And so it contrasts those very differently. But I thought, again, that the way they didn't go in for all that choreography kind of gave it an almost realistic feel. It was quite refreshing in a time when they were really making sure that all the fight scenes were looking quite slick and moving and everybody was dancing all over the place. You had just people pushing each other and throwing horseshoes and running around with burning sticks. I quite like that as a, you know, guys do just fight like this. They grab whatever's to hand and it's not all flashy sword play. I thought that was quite a nice representative of masculinity within the film that was slightly different to what I'd seen in other films of the era. Well, for me, I found the... uh... The really interesting characters, not Navarre and Mouse, but the Bishop and Imperius. And I think they're very interesting because the Bishop, the way he's played and the way that he is then presented is actually really quite interesting because they're bringing up this idea of a man who has become obsessed and who feels that he... So again, going back to Charlotte's uh, point about ownership, but here they're presenting the bishop as a man who thinks he can own her. And because he couldn't have her, he's saying that no one else can have her. And that is what makes him evil rather than you know, murdering lots of people or or whatever else we might have um, to create that kind of sense of this is the the villain. He is the villain because he's kind of, he's the poster boy for certain aspect of toxic masculinity. And I found that really, really interesting. Then on the other side of that, the, the flip side is that you kind of have the wise old man trope with Imperius. But at the same time, he is incapable. He's also the fool. He's the wise man and the fool. And again, that's really interesting. And you don't necessarily see those two kind of put together. Um, of course, you know, it, it did bring to mind uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi quote from A New Hope where he says, um, you know, who's the more fool, the fool or the fool who follows him? But maybe that's just me. Um, <laughs> but I really also liked that that it kind of becomes a story of forgiveness. That you know that Imperius is he messed up. He had vices. He was drunk, and he let slip their secret, which basically caused the curse. Well, was one of the causes of the curse. And he, it's you could almost see the film as kind of it's Imperius's road to redemption and that is really interesting um especially you know uh, for a different kind of male character yeah i liked that you had these two side characters that were actually quite interesting and having some quite different takes on masculinity than you have with the central characters i did quite like the fact that rutger hauer's ultimate bad guy hero had to eventually come down and work with, as um, Megan was saying, the the fool and the wise man and Philippe, whatever whatever he is, the, the young and up and coming one. 
And he sort of, he is the lone wolf, as Lucy said earlier, and he is literally a lone wolf, but then he has to learn to play nicely with others. Um, I quite liked the bit where he is about to, to disappear off and to leave after they've caught him in the, the ice and um, Philippe has hauled him out. And he happens to see Philippe's chest and he sees how scarred and battered he is from hauling him uh, out as a wolf. And it was a wonderful moment. You sort of had this idea of this guy who who was a berserker, who was, you know, in a, a different state at a time when he caused a huge amount of injury and coming to terms with, you know, this is me, this is what I do, and this is what I do to other people. And thinking about that, and I quite like that as a turning point of the film, because then he agrees to kind of work with them and, and to try and break this curse together. So I thought from that point of view, it was it's not quite a buddy movie, but it does have this moment where the lone wolf learns that actually he is stronger with other people. And I thought that was quite a, a nice one. And also he's strong with people who are weaker than him or who are seen traditionally as weaker than him, the old man and the young idiot, effectively. But they still help him and he still sees their value. Um, it's just a shame he couldn't apply that to Isabeau and <laughs> give her some value and agency. But maybe that's the sequel. That's really interesting because I, it's particularly the only, the only kind of moments in the film where like Navarre is genuinely um in trouble and vulnerable is when he's in wolf form like he almost gets like killed for his pelt and then he he really does not do well in falling into the frozen lake i mean you as you said like they went through hell to try and save him you know um and then he almost gets stabbed by a random guard <laughs> when he's a wolf and i just wonder if there this is a p- possibly unsubtle and slightly heavy-handed way of exploring um, you know, the vulnerable side of masculinity to show him, to show that Navarre is like on the outside when he's in his human form, like he's an impenetrable man whose emotions are locked up tight and they can never be released. And he's, you know, very much in control. And then when he's a wolf, like this is who, this is the other side of his personality. This is the other side of kind of who we all are, that the side that we prefer, that maybe toxic masculinity tells men that they're not allowed to show to the world. Um, so I thought that was interesting that it seemed that they had just kind of like put all of his very vulnerable moments when he was in this animal form. I don't know if that's them being not subtle about it or whether that's something that it was just chosen deliberately. Well, I really like that because you think of werewolf mythology. Obviously, you've got the same idea that necessarily they can't really remember but that is when they're at the most powerful. I like the idea that they've taken Navarre and said, well, actually, when he's in his wolf form, he is less powerful, even though he strictly is, you know, claws and teeth and a vicious killing machine. That's actually his his more sensitive side and the side when he is more vulnerable. And yeah, I like that. It's a, a nice twist that I hadn't noticed before. And that it also marries up with what you were saying about a man like this, the, the kind of ultimate man, like learning that he isn't a lone wolf and that he does need help from other people and that actually pushing other people away is is not conducive to him surviving in the long term. You know, I really love the idea that one of the writers of Lady Hawk one day listens to this podcast and goes, that's a load of shit. We just thought the wolf was really cool. <laughs> Well, it's like, I remember doing a poem about Sylvia, that Sylvia Plath had written, and we went on and on for ages about all the symmetry of it and all the wonderful images and everything she conjured up. And then we, we were told it was a poem that she'd written about her wallpaper and her nursery. And I was like, oh. Well, this is the whole foundation of English literature is based on 
reading stuff into things that possibly isn't there. But hey, we do it anyway. So Lady Hawk is full of tropes and scenarios we've seen before. Um, And obviously the main thing about this film is that it is a love story and a tragic one at that until obviously the last 10 minutes or so. Um, The tagline says, always together, eternally apart. So what is the allure of tragic love stories that has kept it going throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, before that, and no doubt beyond into the future? So it's me and I'm going to take the tone down because that's what I do. We would expect nothing else. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I love is, so I don't know if it's on all of the copies or if it's just mine, but on the back of my DVD, the back cover copy opens with the story of a love that can never be consummated. <laughs> and... I just loved this because Ew. <laughs> Ew. the mechanics. <laughs> oh, but that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Though it's like the tragic love story is the ultimate, um, like sexual tension. That's what it is. It's the fact that they can they can't touch, and there's like you know those moments when you know the sun is setting or just rising, and they can almost reach out and touch each other, but they can't. Oh. That tension, that being, you know, so close to the one you love, but not being able to fuck them. Like, (laughs) so poetically put. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I just love that because, well, I mean, even, you know, if you look at the story like Romeo and Juliet, you know, they, they get such... Oh God, I'm going to be really poetic throughout this whole thing. And they get total hard-ons for each other, basically. And then they, you know, obviously at the time, so they they get married in this this absolute rush of passion, so that they can have sex, and then basically they immediately die. The thrill of it and the the tension that builds is all about the not having and being kept apart from this great love. And you you can't really get away from that. And I think that it it does make it timeless and probably one of the reasons that we can continue to watch this film that is probably not one of the best films ever, but one that I do regularly rewatch because it does have this great tragic love story. I want them, you know, I, I sit there and I root for them and I want them to be able to touch and I want them to be able to, you know, just get together again and... There is something really magical about that. You brought the tone back up there at the end. You did well. You did well. Um, I suppose conversely, however, um, saying that it does rather it does rather tell you something about their relationship, doesn't it? If that's kind of all they have, then it's kind of sad. In in the sense of the kind of like, oh, it's not been consummated. Well, but relationships aren't about being consummated. Like they're about learning to understand the other person, like and and their place in the world, and and to try and sharing who you are. And I think that there's a lot more kind of complexity there. So, you know, and particularly this is like shown up in the very like final scenes of the film, where they basically, I mean, like you, nobody can blame them for like clinging to each other and kissing until they, you know, 
pass out but <laughs> um and that's fine but it really i feel like that's their the basis of their entire relationship that i'm not really sure what they have in common on an intellectual level and clearly this is not like this is not something that the film addresses in any way okay i think you're being a little bit unfair <laughs> let's just Let's just remember that they haven't actually been human together for a long time. So we have never really seen them interact as humans and they can't really get that across because it's the curse. So but do you think they ever really had any meaningful conversations, even when they were human? The silence said it all. <laughs> yes, soulmates, <laughs> quite... I think it's left to the imagination of the the reader or the person watching it, isn't it? Because you don't know what has happened. They they have already fallen in love. It's then that they get split apart, which is the tragic side of it. So it's not about two people falling in love like it is in The Princess Bride. It is about two people who have fallen in love already and are parted. Um, and I think that's where the, the tragic bit comes from. It's, you know, we're not seeing them in Romeo and Juliet coming together. So I think how much they talked and chatted and had afternoon tea and walks in the park before they got turned into wolves and hawks is left completely up to the reader or viewer to decide. What a diplomatic response. Yeah, I, I also think that Charlotte and I have very different ideas of the uh, the courting and mateship process, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about in an 80s fantasy movie, right? It's not not what it might be today. I'm sure that Michelle Pfeiffer would want to be wooed very differently than she would do in 13th century France. You know, it's it, it's context. Uh-huh. I also do like the, uh, there's one quote in it which Rutger Hauer says, and it's one of the only times that um, Navarre is a little bit tongue-in-cheek in the film. And, you know, he's, he's talking to um, Mouse about the curse and how you know why it came about who who did it to them and so on and he you know he's laughing at the irony of it and he says oh did you know that hawks and wolves mate for life mate with other wolves and other (laughs) hawks you did get that bit right when i said it was left to the imagination of the viewer megan that was not what i was aiming at (laughs) well i just liked that Anyway, that's fine. <laughs> All right, shall I bring the tone back up? Let's 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 leave that and let's think about you know what modern audiences might relate to in the film, or you know, are there aspects of the film that have stood the test of time? Because we've we've despite you know actually all of us you know enjoying this film to some degree we've kind of ripped the shit out of it. So, <laughs> what are the bits that would still really appeal to to new viewers coming to this film probably broderick's character because like i think the the whole i think we mentioned it before like the asides to the audience and that's that's quite modern i mean it is quite a kind of modern idea that like you do you know what that's a load of wank you know because shakespeare had asides to the audience so okay it's not it's not modern but maybe the way that he does Maybe the way that he does it is kind of modern and it's it maybe the set, the way that they've presented this, like, you know, you think it's going to be a big, like, fancy film, loads of magic and stuff. And then he's just like, ah, oh, it reminds me of uh, Escaping Mother's Womb. And you're like, he's just talking to us, like, on a 
from one poor common prisoner to another, like I us, you know, we're all on the same level. And I quite like the fact that he kind of he's such a human character. Um, so I think he's it makes a really fantastic narrator, kind of, or f- at least a kind of framing narrator for the rest for the kind of very fairy tale like um, rest of the story. I'm sure I've mentioned it before on this podcast, but um, I did a short course studying Homer um, and his Iliad and the Odyssey. And one of the things that was raised as a criticism of Homer is why does this fantastic uh, orator and poet use standard stock phrases when he should be using wonderful language all the time? And the answer to that was, well, actually, because it kind of keys the audience in as to what where the direction of the poem is going and what to expect next. And as much as everything is brilliant and wonderful, every now and again, you need a bit of normality. I kind of feel that this isn't really a standout film, but it is straightforward. It's got a few nice little bits in it. It's got some good characters. You know what's coming. It's a tragic love story. It's going to have a happy ending. There's going to be, you know, wolves and hawks and Howard looking mean and Michelle Pfeiffer looking sultry. And there's a certain charm to that to knowing what's coming and just seeing them have fun I mean <laughs> I know Rutger Howard doesn't really go for emotional um delivery unless of course obviously you watch Blade Runner but I've got to say that um Broderick as Philippe is just he's clearly having so much fun bless him just running around and doing stuff and being manic and Michelle Pfeiffer is clearly into her role and it is good fun to see and I think that that appeals to audiences of all ages and all eras because it's just a a good, fun, solid little film. And yeah, it's got loads of problems with it, of agency and whatever, but no more so than any of the other films of the 80s that you could watch. So, you know, it's not that bad in comparison to some of the others. And I still think there's enough there for even modern day audiences to to do. And to be honest, if I showed my daughter about it, I'm sure it would raise some really interesting discussions about the way men treat women. And it it would be healthy to have those discussions and to see how it was done in the old days and sort of maybe compare it to something a lot more modern, like, dare I say it, Frozen, where there's, you know, less possession of women and more the women bossing the men around. <laughs> I really like the old days as being referred to as <laughs> the 80s. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but when you're a mother of a child and they're like, wow, you're so old, mummy. I'm like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> it is the old days of my childhood. Yeah, it's it's ancient, ancient history. I do feel like we can't be too critical of Lady Hawk when we've got Buttercup as an example on the other side which we had a really nice discussion about and we pretty much came to the same conclusion that Princess Bride is the most amazing one of the most amazing films of all time and we know I'm pretty sure we raised some of the same points it is just the 80s And at least they were trying to make a difference. And there's little bits in there, like we were talking about Navarre when he's a wolf and being more vulnerable and Isabeau at least trying to have some agency and go out and, you know, save her love, even if she does end up being the damsel in distress anyway. At least it's got those aspects that lift it up above some of the other um, genuine trash that was out there in the 80s. So I came at this from a completely different angle in the sense that, for me, something that modern modern audiences could relate to in this film was the corruption in the church. I thought that was great. <laughs> like, Oh, God, everyone loves an evil clergyman. Yeah, I thought that was great. And given all the stuff that continues to come out these days, I just think, that, hey, you know what? That requires no suspension of disbelief whatsoever. So that has definitely stood the test of time. <laughs> 
10 points for a uh, cynical religious uh, <laughs> comment of the night. <laughs> and if we're going for stereotypes, we've got the clergyman who is seduced by the appearance of a woman as well, you know, talking about sins and paganism and all that terrible stuff all wrapped up in Michelle Pfeiffer. And that's what tempts him from the way of God and keeps him obsessed and from being a good clergyman. I think you've completely hit it. It's definitely it's definitely the church, isn't it? Nailed it. <laughs> Not as bad as Kroll, and it's all about the church. These two sentences seem to sum up our Lady Hawk discussion tonight. This film is a product of the 80s, and as expected, it has plenty that a modern-day audience would frown upon, like a lack of agency for the female character and, well, the fact that there's only one female character. Yet if you look a little deeper, there's a lot to like too. Broderick's performance is engaging and amusing, while both Hauer and Pfeiffer bring their own star qualities to the roles. In short, there's plenty in Ladyhawk to ensure its inclusion in a guilty pleasure list of 80s films that we just can't help loving. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.